Let us open our Bibles to John chapter 4. Let us go back for just a moment or two to our Lord's conversation with the woman of Sychar, the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4. And let me read to you these verses and quickly remind you of what we covered last Lord's Day. I do not want us to use in our praying or in our speaking the words that God seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth as a soundbite, but that we would fully understand the sense of the words. And I hope I gave you enough sense of them last Lord's Day, but like Peter said, I want to remind you of it. Verse 20, the woman is speaking, the woman of Sychar, the, the Samaritan woman. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The woman draws the distinction between the nation of the Samaritans and the nation of the Jews. And she says, our fathers, my religious tradition, what my daddy and my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy did, and what all our religious leaders say is right, is that we worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And I taught you this last Lord's Day, where the Samaritans built a temple 30 miles from Jerusalem and aped the religion of the Jews. They followed Moses' law. They had the Passover. They kept feasts, following the religion of the Jews 30 miles away on a different mountain. The woman is referring to that Samaritan worship. And she noticed, she knows that the Jews claim that Mount Zion is the place where worship ought to take place in the city of Jerusalem. So she knows that there's a difference between the two nations. The religious traditions of the Samaritans and the Jews are different. Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem Worship the Father. He is giving a prophecy. She has identified him as a prophet in the preceding verses, like verse 19. And so he gives her a prophecy that there is a great religious change coming. The way he uses his words here in verse 21 does not mean that the Samaritans were worshiping the Father because he's going to correct any such notion in the next verse. They were not worshiping the Father. They didn't know what they were worshiping. They had a very corrupt form of worship, even though they had tried to make it as similar to Moses and the Jews' worship as possible. But Jesus is giving a prophecy that a big religious change is coming and that not even at Jerusalem would true worship be taking place. Verse 22, he says to the Samaritan woman, Ye worship, ye know not what. You Samaritans don't have a clue. You're not even close. Your worship is ridiculous. You don't even know what you're worshiping. And that's terrible when you don't know what you're worshiping. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. At this point in time, true worship is taking place in Jerusalem because God gave it to the Jews. He didn't give it to your fathers. He gave it to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, because the change was already beginning to take place, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Woman, not only is a change coming, but the change has already started. And the change started with John the Baptist, who began baptizing by immersing people in the waters of the Jordan River and in Anan, near to Salem, because there was much water there. The Jews had never seen such a thing. And the Bible says the law and the prophets of the Old Testament were until John. Since that time, John the Baptist being revealed, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So it had started already. The change was taking place. This is what the Bible calls the time of Reformation, where for 40 years, the old covenant of Moses' religion went side by side with the new covenant of Jesus' religion. And then the Lord Jesus Christ wiped out that old covenant by destroying the temple, the city, the priesthood, and altars, and all that pertained to Jewish worship. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In verses 23 and 24, it is repeated for us. God is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. And that combination of words, I want to be more than a soundbite to you. I want you to know exactly what he meant by them. Jesus, by saying God is seeking those who will worship him in truth, was condemning the Samaritans' religion. For 450 years of religious tradition on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans had tried to worship Jehovah by copying the five books of Moses. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had an altar. They had a temple. Until John Hyrcanus, son of Simon Maccabees, destroyed it in 129 B.C. After that date, they still prayed to that site because they were aping Solomon's prayer that even though our temple might be destroyed, if we pray toward this house or where it once stood, will you hear in heaven and deliver us? And God said, I will hear. And that is why Daniel, with no temple in Jerusalem, would open his windows three times a day and kneel and face Jerusalem and pray to the holy spot where God had had his altar and where he would come down between the cherubim and meet with Israel. When Jesus said, ye know not what ye worship, you're worshiping in error. You Samaritans don't have a clue. He didn't care that he was denigrating a nation. He didn't care that he was denigrating a religion. He just said it. This is still the meek and gentle Lord Jesus Christ. But when truth is at stake, the gentleness and meekness is subordinate to his defense and his earnest contention for the truth of God's worship. God demands true worship, and the Samaritans weren't even close. Then he said that the Father seeks those that will worship him in spirit. And by that little expression, he condemned the Jews' religion. Because the Jews' religion was one of external ceremonial ritual. It had an outward altar with an outward sacrifice that came out of your barnyard instead of out of your heart. It had trumpets and it had cymbals and it had robes and incense and colors and sound and sights and smell and incense and candles and gold. 
that's all external. The word spirit here is not the Holy Spirit. The word spirit here is an internal, spiritual religion where we worship with hearts and minds dedicated to the Lord, adoring Him from the inside, not just going through external, carnal, beggarly elements like the Bible describes them. Not the shadows, but the reality of a heart that loves the Lord. And so Jesus, in this statement, condemns one religion with the word truth, condemns his own religion with the word spirit. And he tells the woman, the hour is coming and now is. John has already got this started. In the waters of repentance in the Jordan River. And I'm going to perpetuate it. And the apostles are going to preach it. My dear brethren, no soundbite here. This statement by the Lord Jesus Christ condemns Old Testament worship, and it condemns Samaritan worship, and there's hardly a religion in the world closer to the truth than the Samaritans were. I want you to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, though in a very kind and affectionate and civil conversation with the woman of Samaria, did not hold back to tell her, your nation is wrong. Your parents are wrong. Your grandparents are wrong, she said our fathers. Your great-grandparents are wrong. Your religious leaders are wrong. Your temple that you had until 129 B.C. was worthless. You know not what you worship. And he had just as much authority to say that what they're doing in Jerusalem will not be done there much longer because God is seeking a form of worship that is not done in Jerusalem. And that's the worship that we have today. We have no gold. We have no altar. When I hear a Baptist preacher standing in a pulpit and telling church attendees to come down to the altar, blows my mind. Where in the world did he get such a word and such a concept? There's no altar in this church. There's an altar in heaven. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was offered there once and received. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to say, We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The Jews have true worship. But the hour is coming and it's already started when the true worship is going to be pulled out of Jerusalem and practiced elsewhere. So Jesus is able to recognize that there are changing times when God changes dispensations of truth. And one of those dispensations of truth was the change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go into a church that has musical instruments, they are still worshiping what Moses taught them. They're still under the Old Testament. And it's not true worship, and it's not worship in spirit. That's what this is teaching. The worship that was taking place in Jerusalem that had external sounds for your ears and external sights for your eyes. You know, all you've got is a sore sight in front of you today. Because all that matters is what's going in your ears is supposed to go down into your soul. And it's sounds of understanding, not sounds of a beat. Not sounds of a melody. It's words that we communicate. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. But when if we were to have musical instruments, and I grew up with musical instruments in the church, I played a saxophone in the church. 
But to play a musical instrument is to go back into the Old Testament in worship that Jesus Christ said is not true worship. Because our worship is to be in here. The melody that counts with God is not the melody we pound out on a piano or elicit from an electrical guitar. It's the melody of the heart. It's the Spirit. That's why it says worship in Spirit and in truth. That's why there isn't a single sentence in the New Testament about musical instrumentation. Whenever music is addressed in the New Testament, it says sing. Because singing comes from a melody in the heart and it communicates words of understanding that lift up our spirits and our hearts toward the Lord. Jesus Jesus knew the change that God was making from the Old Covenant to the New. So many changes have taken place. And we're taught them in the Bible. You know, some continue to practice the apostolic gifts. There are churches in Greenville that think they have an apostle as their pastor. When the Bible tells us that Paul was the last apostle, and there can't be any more after Paul. Because an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not worshiping in spirit. It's not worshiping in truth because it's somebody still under a former changed form of worship. We want to submit to what the Bible tells us. We want to recognize that Jesus was telling this woman, neither in your mountain, neither in Jerusalem, is true worship going to be taking place shortly. It's going to be a different kind of worship. Where do we get all the heresies? Why are there Seventh-day Adventists? Why are there Mormons? Why is there Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodox Catholics? Why is there a Russian Orthodox Church and Jehovah's Witnesses? Why are there Presbyterians and Methodists? Why? How did it happen? One error leads to another. Once you corrupt one part of God's Word because it is an integral whole, and every part of this Bible depends on other parts, if you alter one part of it, you start a corruption of the Word of God. One reason. Two reasons. Because error is deceitful to the heart and will blind you. Once you accept and embrace an error... It leads to other errors because it blinds the heart. Forget that it corrupts the Word of God. Now it corrupts your heart. Third, when you embrace an error, God will judge. If you do not receive the love of the truth, God will supernaturally cause you to be deceived. Three reasons where they all came from. And it started with an error, and we want to hold fast to the truth that God has revealed to us. Look at 2 Timothy Chapter 3. And let's look at the state of affairs in our nation today and across the world today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first five verses. Let me repeat myself before I say that. It's things I've told you many times. I write this several times a week. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 5. 22 verses of one solitary lesson. One single lesson. A prophetic warning from Paul to Timothy of a change in Christianity. Christians would alter their form of worship in private and in public. There would be compromise and carnality and worldliness and an effeminacy contrary to what the apostles had taught. And Paul called these times perilous times of the last days and told Timothy the cure and it's here in these 22 verses. It's a wonderful passage. People 
people all the time want to write me or they want to say to me, who are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 13? Or they want to write me about Daniel. Or they want to write me about Matthew 24. There's one prophecy that they ought to be studying and making sure they understand the application of above all those. Right here. Right here. But this one, see, comes close to home. It tells them how they ought to be living so they don't like it. Because, see, you can dabble in the two witnesses of Revelation 13 for the rest of your life, and actually, it won't do you any good in comparison to this. It's not even comparable. This is a prophecy to us, about us. And we want to understand that the first five verses list about 20 character traits of an ungodly generation of Christians. But I want to read it verse 6. For of this sort, these false Christian teachers who are teaching a loose, casual, contemporary style of the gospel, Timothy was to turn away from them. Look at the last four words of verse 5. From such, turn away. Get away from those kind of preachers, Timothy. For of this sort, these kind of preachers are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what we live in today, right here in this passage. Except we have a fulfillment of these verses in a sense and a way that no one else has ever had. And that is television and radio creeping into houses and leading captive silly women while their husbands are gone to work. As they listen to James Dobson, Billy Graham, and other Benny Hinn, and other radio and television ministers who embody this new brand of compromising religion. Silly women means vulnerable to error, susceptible, weak. They're led away with divers' lusts and they go to seminars and they sit around and listen to women preachers and effeminate preachers and they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible tells us about this. He warned us about it in advance. Verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these false teachers also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. Janus and Jambres were Pharaoh's magicians who tried to stop Moses, who tried to perform the miracles and duplicate what Moses was doing in order to persuade Pharaoh not to listen to him. But their sleight of hand and devil possession ran out, didn't it? And they saw the finger of God and they told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. But they resisted the truth and so do these false teachers. We live we live in the fulfillment of this. That should be so exciting to us that God has chosen us to be in a prophecy of the Bible. See, the martyrs knew the prophecy they were in. The martyrs knew as the Roman Catholic Church itself or the sheriffs or the soldiers of the nations under the dominion of Rome strapped them to posts and burned them to death. They knew that that enemy that was doing it to them was the prophesied Antichrist and the great whore of Revelation. And they could go 
to meet the Lord knowing that they were fulfilling Bible prophecy. We can go knowing that we are fulfilling Bible prophecy. And the way that we can fulfill Bible prophecy is to earnestly contend for the truth in a day when men resist the truth. And then look at chapter 4. Verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 3, it's still part of the same warning to Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Do we live in a time that in the last 50 years, the components of a church service have drastically changed from preaching the Bible to entertainment, to praise bands, to storytelling, to a social gospel, to a prosperity gospel in 50 years. Listen, the old Arminians used to preach better than the present Calvinists. Arminians would get and preach hellfire and brimstone. And there was no salvation outside the Lord Jesus Christ. They may have had their ordo salutis out of order. They may have had faith in front of regeneration, and they did, and it's a heresy and it's wrong. But they preached godliness and godly living. And they preached the King James Bible unapologetically just 50 years ago. But nobody wants to sit and listen to preaching. Our church will never get very big. There's too much preaching. It's too long. It's too boring. Look at what it says. The time will come when they will not endure. It takes endurance. Your butt gets tired. Your back gets tired. Your mind gets tired. Your ears get tired. I know. Your eyes get heavy. The top lid wants to come down and hug the bottom lid. It's very difficult. So you've got to work and prepare. And you've got to sit there and concentrate. But the time will come where they don't want to do it anymore. I want something entertaining up on the stage. I want a late show. I want a rock band. I want dancing. I want miming. What's a minister's job description? It was given in the first three words of verse 2. Look at it. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Should I get up and give you a chalk drawing? See, as a little boy, I used to go to men that were so gifted that they could preach at 100 miles an hour and make a nice chalk drawing. They had their back to you half the time. But by the time they got done, they had this beautiful piece of artwork done. You know, as a little boy, I would just sit there, cool. You know, and then when I'd get over and I'd go up there and I'd be looking at it, he'd say, you know, I stuck a little deer in there and I stuck a little rabbit in there for you and your brother. <laughs> and so we'd be, we'd be looking at this little thing, this picture, this chalk drawing, this painting, and sure enough, he's got a little rabbit down there under a bush and he's got a deer staring at us. Smile, my father. Please. But they were gifted men. But God didn't put that gift in no pulpit. The only thing that's supposed to come out of a pulpit is preach the Word. If any of you have heard of Peter Ruckman, Peter Ruckman does what I just described. He can give you a beautiful chalk drawing while going 100 miles an hour as he engages his 160 IQ in the 165 heresies that he holds. But he does defend the King James Bible. In a poor way, but he does do it. And sometimes it's entertaining to hear him. I'm saying all this because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So what will they do? They will heap after their own lusts. Shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears? 
Whatever they want, they're going to get that kind of a preacher. So when they find a church like New Spring down in Anderson or World Redemption Outreach Center here in Greenville or the Elevation Church in Charlotte, they'll flock to it because they know that they're not going to have to endure preaching. There's no preaching that come out of those places. There's a bunch of storytelling and it's just very short because most of it is entertainment. They don't care how you dress. They don't care how you live. They don't care how you act. Just come. Come as you are. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. I'm preaching to you about truth. And we live in the fulfillment of this. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That there's an apostle in this city, that's a fable. That speaking in tongues is an apostolic gift that still exists in the church today, that is a fable. The gift of tongues went away, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Tongues shall cease as soon as the apostles had finished the New Testament and they had perfect revelation, there was no further need for tongues. Amen. Tongues were not made for believers, but guess where they're only spoken in Pentecostal and charismatic churches today? In their assemblies. Tongues were used for those that had never heard the gospel so that they might believe a fisherman that he was telling the truth about a resurrected carpenter's son. They're turned to fables. We've got fables of the seventh day. Yesterday I get another email. We appreciate your website so much of its strong stand for the truth. We just wonder why you don't defend the doctrine of the fourth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. Well, I sent them a few thoughts on that subject. It took about 30 pages of an attachment. There's a reason. And they say, why you oppose Catholicism, but you're keeping the Catholic day of worship. Seventh-day Adventists have been taught, and they're so blind they believe, that the Roman Catholic Church changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. So not only are we sun worshipers by worshiping on Sunday, we're Roman Catholics because we're keeping the mark of the beast. That's what they say, and that's what they believe. But I want you to know there was no Catholic church by their own teachers until 597 A.D. Because they understand the 1260 years of papal dominion of Europe to be years, and they ended in around the 17 and 1800s. They're pitiful. The Catholic Church had nothing to do with it. The apostles of Jesus Christ, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, changed the worship of Jesus Christ to the first day of the week. They never can quote from a New Testament. They have to go to Exodus. Jesus said that kind of worship that was being done in Jerusalem is no more. Right. It's a new form of worship. Why don't they ever quote me an epistle of the apostles? Amen. Because there is no defense for their heresy in the New Testament. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 to gather your offerings together on the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, when he came to the city of Troas, he worshipped with them on the first day of the week. I don't care if it's called Sunday or Moon Day 
like Monday is, or Thor's Day, like Thursday, or Frida's Day, like Friday, or Saturn's Day, like Saturday. All the names of the days of our week are gathered from pagan religion. Right. has nothing to do with anything. We follow the New Testament. And they've turned to fables. They've turned their ears away from the truth, and they're turning to fables. And somebody will say, you're not very nice to pick on another religion. I'm supposed to pick on every religion that's contrary to the New Testament. That's my job. That's your job. And Jesus gave us the great example in John chapter 4 by telling a woman who didn't have her husband there because she didn't have one because she'd already had five and was now living with a man that wasn't her husband. He took a woman, a defenseless little silly woman, a vulnerable woman, and told her, your whole nation, your whole religion is wrong. You don't have a clue about what you're doing. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, we have the truth in our nation, but God is taking it away from the Jews. It'll be ripped out of Jerusalem. It's already started. And God is seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Look at this warning that we have right here. False teachers are going to creep into houses and lead captive silly women in verses 6 and 7. Women that are always learning. They love to go to seminars. They love to read books. Go into a Christian bookstore and take a survey. Go to the, go to the most popular Christian bookstore in your town. Sit out in your car with a piece of paper and bring and tell me how many men and how many women went in and bought the books. That's all you need to know. And you'll know that we're living in the fulfillment of this. So there's a wife sitting at home becoming the spiritual leader of her family when she was never called to that job whatsoever by God. The father is supposed to do that. The husband is supposed to do that. If the wife will learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. The children, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Who? Did he say parents bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? No, he didn't. Did he say mothers? No, he said fathers. Look at Isaiah 38. Look at Isaiah 38. I'm sorry to turn you away from that passage right now, but I'm basically done with it. Isaiah 38. They creep into, false teachers creep into houses with all these books, videos, radio ministries, television ministries, DVDs. They resist the truth. They're reprobate concerning the faith. And and the people have it just the way they want it. They don't want to hear preaching anymore. The big churches in this country, by big, I just mean, yeah, they were pretty big, but they were they put men in the pulpit, even when they were Arminian. They would preach the King James Bible with authority, and they would demand holy living even though they were messed up on some of the order of salvation, they knew that salvation was only by Jesus Christ. And they knew that holy living was what pleased God. And they hated the the assault that the world was making on Christians. But that's gone. Preaching is almost gone. It's entertainment now. Isaiah 38, I'm back to fathers. Verse 19, Hezekiah is praising the Lord for giving him a 15-year addition to his life. And in Isaiah 38, 19, the living, the living 
He shall praise thee as I do this day. The Father to the children shall make known thy truth. And this is just one of many passages. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, Joel chapter 1 tells us that the fathers are to teach the children the fear of the Lord. That's the order. And when God's order is disrupted in a home, trouble is sure to follow. And trouble is following in America. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. And let us remember why we have a church and what we want to accomplish this day. Hebrews chapter 10. The reason that we assemble together is to hold fast the truth that we have received. And to hold it fast means to not let it go because it's fastened there. You're holding it fastened to you and you will not let it go. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that promised Everything declared in the Word of God is sure and His commandments stand to a thousand generations and every promise will receive its complete and perfect fulfillment because God is faithful. Verse 24, And let us consider one another. You are here for others. Let us consider one another. Each one of you are to consider every other person in here. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. What can you do this day to help someone else or everyone else around you on a one-to-one basis serve the Lord better? That is why you're here. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another There's that one, another duty again, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. As we see hard times coming, and as we see temptations coming, for these Hebrews, it was the destruction of Jerusalem. For us, Gentiles, it is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we go to church, to help one another serve God better. Because in the six days, or the seven days, Since we last saw each other, we have been assaulted by the world. We've been assaulted by our wicked flesh that wants to fulfill its lusts. And this is why we help each other hold the truth. Hold, hold fast the profession of our faith. The profession, not professions. There's one faith. There's one apostolic faith. Once delivered to the saints. And that's what we want to hold fast. There are many concepts of truth. Let me remind you of them again. We understand truth to be what God has defined and declared. Not like the Catholics say, from the bishop's seat in Rome, but from the Word of God. The Bible, the 66-book Bible of the Baptists. The King James Bible blessed with 400 years of spiritual fruit, showing that it's God's Word, defines for us what truth is. It tells us what truth is and what error is. 
It gives us the limitations on every point of doctrine. It tells us how to understand what is right and what is wrong in the sight of God. What does everyone else think? Some think truth is situational. It depends on the circumstances that you're in. Circumstances don't alter truth. Truth is sure and stands forever. If you're saying to me that sometimes mercy is more important than sacrifice, that is still truth, that statement, and it never varies. It's just your application of the truth. There is still a true way to apply Matthew 12, 7, and there is a false way to apply Matthew 12, 7. It never, it never changes. It just depends which, are you going to grab the truth and apply it to your situation or the corruption of Matthew 12, 7? I'll give you a quick example and remind you, David ate the showbread and it was mercy. David had Uzzah drive a new ox cart and he reached back to steady the Ark of the Covenant and it was not mercy. A man died. The difference was it's truth. It's the true application of Matthew 12, 7, of Hosea 6, 6. What David understood, David blew the truth when he put the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart and a man died for it. It's not situational. Some think truth is personal. Well, we're going to agree to disagree. And will they think that this is the way to heaven? We're all going to the same place And we all love Jesus. All we have to do is love Jesus. Because it doesn't really matter how we worship as long as we love Jesus. Where is that taught in the Bible? The Bible says, the Bible says that if an angel from heaven, or even if the Apostle Paul were to preach anything different than what Paul had preached to the Galatians, let him be accursed. It's not personal. Unless you're going to talk about the person of God. Because God's the one that's declared it, and He is the person that calls the shots when it comes to true worship. Some think truth is found in sincerity. Nuns are sincere. The prophets of Baal were sincere. They cut themselves better than you ever have in worshiping God. They danced all day long calling upon their false god. Sincerity has nothing to do with it. Men are sincerely wrong. The millions outside the ark were sincerely wrong. They all drown for being sincere. Some think truth is found in science. We couldn't care less what scientists say. If scientists contradict the Word of God, then the Bible tells us it's science falsely so-called. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Scientists say that all of the order and beauty and reproduction of our universe came from a bang of cosmic gases in the universe and that your grandparents were monkeys. But we know better than that. Science is a big bunch of lies. Some think truth is to be found in popularity. It's what churches are growing the fastest. Well, then you ought to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Popularity has nothing to do with it. The popular opinion in Noah's day was, what in the world is rain? The popular opinion in Jesus' day is, He's an imposter and a blasphemer. Some believe that truth is determined by antiquity, whatever some previous generation held, or some favored generation. 
or some old men. Forget them all. They're a bunch of old men. What does the Bible say? What does God's Word declare on these points of doctrine? Those old men that you can find whose books were not burned? There's a reason their books weren't burned. Those men who had time because they were supported by state churches so they could sit around on their wide seats and write all day, and Baptist preachers couldn't do that? You want to read their books? Their baby-sprinkling, eternal sonship, state church, quasi-scholarship, heretics. Anything contrary to truth is heresy. Any point of doctrine. When we call someone a heretic, that doesn't mean we're sending them to hell. It's not our place to send anyone to hell. God's in charge of heaven and hell, and the Lord Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and of death. But when a man differs from the truth of God's word, he is guilty of heresy, and if he's guilty of heresy, his name is a heretic. That's all we mean by it. I'm not interested in the Reformation of the 16th century. I'm interested in the Reformation of the 1st century. That's the Reformation that God blessed. We don't care about antiquity. The uh, Our beloved brother David would say that I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. And because I meditate on thy precepts, the opinions of the ancients, the opinions of my teachers don't matter to me. It's what does thy word say. Some think truth is to be found in education. So that if you're reading a book written by a man with a doctor in front of his name, a doctor or a THD behind his name, you've got someone special and he's going to open the word of God to you. I want to tell you that it was the doctors of Israel that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the prostitutes and the tax collectors of Israel that followed him. It was the fishermen that followed him. But it was the doctors of the law that crucified him. Some think truth is found in personality, that a charming and powerful man must hold the truth. The only charming and powerful man that we care about is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. God couldn't care less about their personalities. Nowhere is that taught in the Bible. But so many are led led astray by a strong personality in the pulpit and leading a church. Some think truth is found in feelings. It just feels right to me, they say. I just have a peace about it. God never told you to feel right about anything. He told you that you shouldn't trust your feelings. He told you that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but God searcheth the hearts. It's not what you feel. It's what does God's Word say. It has nothing to do with peace. Usually when you follow the truth, there's not going to be a whole lot of peace. There's going to be a sword. The closer you are to the truth, the more you're going to be persecuted. Just listen to the verse. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Amen. That's in that warning that I just referred you to in right. 2 Timothy 3. It's verse 12. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So there's not peace. There's trouble. So when you choose to follow Jesus, you lose friends, you lose family, and life gets harder except the Lord's with you. Amen. And that makes it right. And the Word of God supports you. That makes it right. Some think truth is found in results. If it works, it must be right. Really? So, if a man believes in debt and gets rich, all of a sudden debt's good? Or is it the prosperity of fools? If a parent doesn't ever use corporal punishment on his children and the children turn out okay, 
Does that mean that we can just throw away the book of Proverbs, that we don't need corporal punishment? Because some murderer found Jesus in prison and didn't commit any more murder, we should get rid of capital punishment? The Bible answers all these things. Results do not prove truth. If you're to pick the fastest growing church in Greenville, you certainly shouldn't be sitting here. These are what many others think. But, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Bless the preaching of it to the ears of Thy people.